This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. Marjorie Taylor Greene is one of the biggest morons in America, and she is a lawmaker, but yet she knows nothing about law or policy. Therefore, she kind of is forced to just be a cheerleader for the far right and for Christian nationalists in America, which she says, by the way, is a good thing, but because she can't actually come up with any policies to improve the lives of her constituents, well, she's forced to try to goad people into giving her publicity stunts, which she can then fundraise off of. For example, she tweeted to Parkland mass shooting survivor turned gun control advocate David Hogg, I hear you and your girls are funded to come to town this week to once again try to manipulate some of my gutless weak colleagues to vote for gun control that will violate our freedoms and leave Americans defenseless. I don't see you on my schedule. Why not? First of all, note the homophobic jab there. I see that you're in town with your girls. It's funny that you're always hanging out with girls. Is that your only friends? Are you not a real man? Do you not have friends who are male? You must be gay, and that's bad, definitely. I mean, what a horrible person she is. But she is trying to get this person who literally became a gun control advocate because he almost died during a mass shooting to come to her office so she can then tell all of her constituents, hey, I just defended your rights. I defended your freedom. Maybe chip it and give me 10 bucks. It's just so shameless. It's so transparent. And yet she does it all the time. And anyone who engages with Marjorie Taylor Greene and tries to have an honest conversation is wasting their time. To have a conversation with her would be less successful than having a conversation with a houseplant. And I mean that literally. It's why people like AOC refuse to engage in a debate with her. It's why David Hogg turned her down, because you're not going to have a conversation with someone this bad faith, this moronic. And David Hogg responded by ratioing her into oblivion, saying, Congresswoman Green, I'm more interested in protecting children and meeting common sense people who are looking for reasonable solutions to stop children from dying. Don't really have time to help you go viral for attacking survivors so you can fundraise. Respectfully, David. And he adds, since you were going to use me as a fundraising opportunity, I will ask people to please donate to support our march on June 11th of Americans, both Democrat and Republican, demanding gun safety. Go to marchforourlives.com slash donate. Now, Fred Gutenberg, whose child Jamie was murdered during the Parkland school shooting, tweeted this to Marjorie Taylor Greene. Hey, Representative MTG, I will also be coming to D.C. I will bring pictures of my girl Jamie, who was murdered in Parkland. If you are looking for people to put on your schedule, please put me Wednesday, Thursday or Friday. What day is best for you? Now, for some reason, Marjorie Taylor Greene hasn't responded. Hmm, interesting. Maybe she didn't see it. Maybe it's just a little bit more difficult to look a father whose child was murdered in the face and say, you're taking away my freedom. She can't do that. It's easier to try to bully someone who is a lot younger than her, probably, you know, she's twice his age, and who she perceives to be gay. So therefore, you know, maybe she could push him around because he's gay, he's weak, he's always hanging around with girls. But she doesn't want to talk to this father, doesn't want to look him in the eye. Interesting. Can't fundraise off of that, right? You can't get a win out of that situation because you kind of look 
terrible. No, she still looks terrible either way. This is an individual who followed David Hogg around in DC and was yelling at him, harassing him because he wants to take away her freedom, supposedly, because he's advocating for common sense gun control. I mean, this is who we have elected in Congress. And she's going to win re-election almost certainly. I mean, if you look at the GOP primary that took place in her district, she won with 69.5% of the vote. So GOP voters, specifically in this district, they see that they have this imbecile representing her. They're not getting any wealthier. They're getting more poor, more disadvantaged. They still don't have health care basic access to education that is affordable and yet they're saying you know what we want to send this imbecile back to congress because even though she's not doing anything to improve our lives economically or socially at least she's making people um feel bad by owning the libs and calling gays pedophiles which on that note she uh kicked off pride by doing just that saying, I could care less what two consenting adults do sexually, nor do I judge, but when it comes to adults training children sexually, both mentally and physically, I do care. And so do most people. We must protect children from child grooming predators and abusers in every way possible. First of all, the saying is, I couldn't care less, because if you say that you could care less, it implies that you do care at least a little. But she's implying here that LGBTQ plus people are groomers and pedophiles, and that's what they're doing and mass. Meanwhile, one of her closest allies in Congress, Matt Gates, is being investigated for sex trafficking of minors. And to make matters worse, she just hired fellow Christian nationalist Milo Yiannopoulos as an intern who was fired from Breitbart literally because he made pro-pedophilia comments. The New York Times described a tape where he made these comments in a 2017 article saying, but in the tape, the fast-talking polemicist is clear that he has no problem with older men abusing children as young as 13, which he then conflates with relationships between older and younger gay men who are of consenting age. No, 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 you're misunderstanding what pedophilia means, Mr. Yiannopoulos says on tape, in which he is talking to radio hosts in a video chat. Pedophilia is not a sexual attraction to somebody 13 years old who is sexually mature. Pedophilia is attraction to children who have not reached maturity. He adds, dismissing the fact that 13-year-olds are children. The notion of consent, he says, is arbitrary and oppressive. At one point in the video, an unknown speaker says that the behavior being defended by Mr. Yiannopoulos is akin to molestation by Catholic priests. Mr. Yiannopoulos responds in an ironic tone by crediting a priest for having helped develop his sexual technique. Conservatives reacted with near unanimous disgust at the comments. But what does Marjorie Greene do? She hires this individual who made pro-pedophilia comments. He defended child abuse and said that age of consent laws are oppressive. And yet she's like, I want to hire him. I want to align with the person who's under investigation for sex trafficking of a minor whose ally is in trouble for this thing. And yet she's saying, oh my God, we have to protect children from uh, groomers, LGBTQ plus people. Marjorie, it's not LGBTQ plus people who are groomers. You need to look in the mirror because you're aiding and abetting actual fucking groomers or people who advocate for the abuse of children. It, it's truly astonishing. But again, she won her election overwhelmingly, her GOP primary. So, you know, she wears this hypocrisy on her sleeve in a shameless fashion, and her constituents said, yep, let's give her two more years at a minimum in Congress, overwhelmingly so. So it's not just that GOP lawmakers are unhinged and insane. The base has become so detached from reality that now, 
they don't care about their own well-being. They don't care about the economy as much as they care about triggering the libs. They don't care that they can make a living wage and don't have health care, so long as Marjorie Taylor Greene continues to call gay people pedophiles. Isn't that astonishing? One of two major political parties is essentially an alliance of Christian nationalists and far-right fascists, and they make it known that all they care about is total domination and subjugating the rest of us to their theocratic beliefs, but yet the base is like, yeah, I'd rather stay poor and vote for that so that way they can own the libs than actually vote for someone who cares about us. It's truly ridiculous, but this is the state of American politics. The GOP is a cult. And until we convince our GOP friends to wake the fuck up and stop voting for these ghouls, nothing is going to change in this country. The GOP base loves it, right? There's no such thing as ultra MAGA. It's not like Marjorie Taylor Greene or Donald Trump is some sort of an anomaly. This is who the GOP is. And to deny it is to be complicit in what they're doing to this country. So that's Marjorie Taylor Greene, shamelessly hypocritical, shamelessly trying to make money off of school shooting survivors who th she thinks that she could bully and yet you know she's gonna get elected she shouldn't even be in congress mind you because it is unconstitutional literally for an insurrectionist to be in congress but yet she's gonna get elected overwhelmingly i mean what kind of a backwards ass country is this where we actually have somebody in violation of the constitution because she's an insurrectionist but yet, she gets to remain in Congress even though illegally she should be disqualified from running. And on top of that, we have a secular constitution as fucked up as the U.S. Constitution is. But at least it's secular. And it says that, you know, the government cannot establish a religion. But yet, the theocrats have taken over and they get to choose the way that we live our lives. Trans people shouldn't be able to transition. If you're a parent, you can't seek out gender affirming care for your child. If you're a woman, you can't get an abortion. But yet these people are the defenders of the constitution it's just truly ridiculous but again this is the gop marjorie green isn't the exception to the rule she represents all of them a new cbs news and yougov poll released yesterday confirms what a lot of us already suspected that there is a large percentage of republicans who are willing to just accept that violence is the norm in the United States of America. Even if we actually don't have to live like this, they're saying, sorry, that's the cost of freedom, and we're going to choose for all of you that violence is going to be the norm. So as Jake Johnson of Common Dreams explains, a survey published Sunday shows that nearly half of Republican voters in the United States believe mass shootings of the kind that took the lives of 19 young children in Uvalde, Texas last month are unfortunately something we have to accept as part of a free society. Wow. According to the CBS slash YouGov poll, 44% of GOP voters and 15% of Democratic voters feel that frequent mass shootings are an inescapable reality in the United States where there are more guns than people. That view appears to be out of step with the vast majority of U.S. society, however. The new survey shows that U.S. adults overall, regardless of party or political affiliation, believe by a 72% to 28% margin that mass shootings are something we can prevent and stop if we really tried. More specifically, the poll found that 62% of U.S. adults support a nationwide ban on AR-15s, but despite the proposal's popularity, it is not even on the table in the latest round of congressional gun control negotiations due to overwhelming GOP opposition. In other words, they know that your children might literally be slaughtered, but that's just the price that they're willing to pay. That's the cost of freedom, baby. I mean, this is delusional. 
freedom in their view means that you can literally do anything you want. The right to bear arms, that means anything goes, essentially. So they just, they don't want to draw the line. I mean, am I allowed to own a nuke? I'm not going to nuke anybody, but I mean, I just want to own it for self-defense purposes. Can I own anti-aircraft weaponry? If an airplane flies over my backyard, I mean, isn't that technically violating my property rights? And as a property owner, shouldn't I be allowed to shoot down that plane? Sure, I mean, the people on that plane are going to die, but that's just the cost of freedom. They shouldn't have violated my property rights and trespassed. I mean, it's preposterous. They know that you have to draw the line somewhere, but this is where they're choosing to draw the line. Dead kids are acceptable. Dead fetuses, however, can't have that. So we're literally going to have the government ban women from controlling their own bodies because we care that much about dead fetuses. Dead children, however, sorry, that's just the price of freedom. Now, notice how we're not even talking about banning guns. Nobody's having that conversation. We're simply talking about common sense gun reform, banning AR-15s, putting caps on high capacity magazines making people become certified and take gun safety training courses in order to obtain a firearm, have references that speak to their character. But no, not even possible. In fact, Don Byers is currently working on legislation that would put a tax on AR-15s of 1,000%, and he's trying to get this passed using budget reconciliation, knowing that not a single Republican will support this. And since they won't get banned, well, the next best thing is to try to make it cost prohibitive for more people because, God forbid, we do anything to stop this. This is just the way that it is. But honestly, as disgusting and despicable as these respondents are to this poll, I've got to admit that it's gross, but somehow refreshingly honest because we've seen politicians blame doors. We've seen them blame rap music and video games. We've seen them blame abortion and a new one. Well, they're blaming black people. But at least with that poll, the respondents are at least tacitly acknowledging that, yeah, it's the guns. We know it's the guns. More guns leads to gun violence, but... That's just what we're going to accept. And we're going to impose this view on everyone else as well because we're in control currently. Even though we're a minority party, we have the Supreme Court. And pretty soon, they're going to exacerbate this issue most likely. They're poised to hand down a ruling that makes it so that way. States' rights? What's that? We can all have guns in this country in open carry. And I'm, I'm kind of like oversimplifying the situation, but this is the reality of the United States right now. And I, I want to ask every single person who answered in that way, would you feel the same way if one of your kids were gunned down? Would you feel the same way if you experienced what this mother experienced, where she had to fight past police to run into a school and save her children's lives during the Uvalde school shooting? Let's watch. Arrest you because you're being very uncooperative. I said, well, you're going to have to arrest me because I'm going in there and I'm telling you right now, I don't see none of y'all in there. Y'all are standing with snipers and y'all are far away. I'm, if y'all don't go in there, I'm going in there. He right, immediately put me in cuffs. She says after Uvalde police officers told marshals to uncuff Gomez, she ran towards the school. As soon as they uncuffed me, I jumped that first gate fence. And once I jumped it, I went to my son's class and I knocked on the door and I remember the teacher saying, um, I'm like, hey, they're already, they're already um, bulge cutting the fence to get me. She's like, you think we have time to get out? I said, you'll have time. I'm going to run for my other son. Once she was assured her son was okay, Gomez ran to get her other child, encountering more officers who tried to stop her. So I start yelling and I'm being a cooperative and I'm like, well, y'all aren't doing What are y'all doing? Y'all ain't doing 
Y'all need to be in here. Give me your best. Somebody give me a best. Some, something. I started paying attention to how far the shots were being so that I knew the shooter was all the way still by my first son's class. So when I went to my son, my second son's door, the teacher didn't want to open the door for me. So that's when they started um, escorting me out. And as I, as I see that they're opening my son's door, I go run for my son and I get him. With both of her kids out safe, Gomez still can't shake the thought of those who didn't make it. While you were inside the school, did you see officers there inside the school? There was not one school? officer inside the school when I In ran to areas. my second son's class. There was not one officer. And you were hearing gunshots, so you knew you that could hear the it gunshots. was an active shooter. It was still active. The gunshots were still active. They were not in there. There was no one in there. If anything, when I pulled up, my car was closer to the school than, the, where, than where the snipers and everybody that was laying on the ground were. When you heard that it took law enforcement 75 minutes before they went in and stopped the shooter, what was your thinking, having been inside the school yourself? I don't know. I was just thinking that they could have saved many more lives. They could have gone into that classroom and maybe two or three would have been gone, but they could have saved a whole, a whole more, the whole class. They could have done something, gone through the window, sniped them through the window. I mean something but nothing was being done if anything they were being more aggressive on us parents that were willing to go in there and like i told one of the officers i don't need you to protect me get away from me i don't need your protection if anything i need you to go in there with me to go protect my kids and if anything they were being more aggressive on us they were more pertained on keeping us back than getting into that school now that video should warrant an entire conversation about a different issue and that's the failure of the police in Uvalde, Texas. But just for purposes of this conversation, I want to ask every single person who answered that way in the poll that said that, you know, this is just the cost of freedom, dead kids. Uh, would you feel the same way if you literally had to fight past police to run into a school, risk your own life to save the lives of your two children? Would you feel the same way? Would you say after experiencing that, what that mother experienced, that this is the price of freedom? I can't imagine anyone would be delusional enough to still maintain that position, but a lot of conservatives don't care unless it happens to them. And this isn't the only poll where a large percentage of Republicans have vocalized their acceptance of violence. Let me remind you about a different poll conducted by the American Enterprise Institute, which found that 39% of Republicans believe political violence may be justified. And when you have fans of popular right-wing propagandists asking questions like this. When do we get to use the guns? No, and I'm, and, I, and I'm not, that's not a joke. I'm not saying it like that. I mean, literally, where's the line? How many elections are they going to steal before we kill these people? It really shouldn't be a surprise to think that, well, yeah, of course, this is how a large percentage of Republicans view freedom. Yeah, kids are going to die. Black people might literally be targeted while they're shopping for groceries, but that's just the cost of freedom. It's just truly a delusional definition of freedom to me freedom is living a life where you are free from fear of dying at a movie theater or grocery store or free of fearing for your children's life but to them freedom means anything goes sorry it's just it's sad it's sad the gop in this country has cultivated a cult that accepts violence as the norm and they literally believe a large percentage of them believe 
that you have to accept violence because that's the cost of freedom. Even if it turns this country into a hellhole, even if it turns schools into war zones, that's just the price of freedom. Dead kids is the price of freedom, not dead fetuses. No price of freedom there. We have to save these fetuses. But dead kids, that's the cost of freedom. It is truly demented and sick, but this is the base that the GOP has fostered and cultivated. And here we are. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today I will be taught the word of God. I boldly confess my mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same. I'm about to receive the incorruptible, indestructible, ever-living seed of the Word of God. I'll never be the same. Never, never, never. I'll never be the same in Jesus' name. God bless you. You'll love to see it. Those were activists from the group Texas Rise Up for Abortion Rights, and even though televangelist Joel Osteen didn't acknowledge them during their protest, needless to say, they got his attention, given that he took to Twitter afterwards to block the activist group after they protested in his church. Now, I know what a lot of you are going to respond by saying, well, why disrupt a church service? Isn't this inappropriate? Joel Osteen doesn't have any political power. Shouldn't we leave the churches alone? Well, no. And the activist who was there leading this protest explained after she was kicked out why it's necessary to confront these televangelists right where they do these services, right where they disseminate the propaganda. Take a look. here today to break the silence and stand up because the Christians are not afraid to bother us at healthcare clinics, at doctor's offices trying to get essential healthcare. So why the fuck wouldn't we bother you in your own home where the laws are coming from? And she is exactly correct here. It is naive to continue to pretend as if preachers and televangelists don't have political power in this country. It's time to wake up and acknowledge that not only do they have political power and influence over politicians, they're setting the agenda. They're forcing all of us to live in their theocratic vision of the United States, even if we have a secular constitution. People like Joel Osteen brainwashes millions of people, yet he gets to advance this political agenda while remaining completely tax-free. And that to me is completely unacceptable. No tax-exempt status for churches who push political agendas. Now to me, this is representative of a broader movement that needs to be renewed, by the way, and I think is coming back, but a movement that is pushing back against hate preachers setting the agenda. Now, Joel Osteen doesn't necessarily speak about abortion as much as other hate preachers, but make no mistake about it, he's still a hate preacher nonetheless, even though he tries to market himself as a more loving and open-minded Christian. As The Advocate explains, back in 2009 on The View, co-host Whoopi Goldberg asked Osteen if gay people are welcome at his church. He responded that they are, but homosexuality is not 
not God's best. The following year, he went on the show again and tried to clarify the statement with limited success. I don't think it's God's best for your life, he said. I don't think it's not God's best making us. In 2012, appearing on Oprah's next chapter, he told Oprah Winfrey, I believe that homosexuality is shown as a sin in the scripture, but he doesn't think anyone can become totally free of sin, so he believes gays will be accepted into heaven. Oh, well, how loving. He thinks that human beings loving other human beings is sinful, but yet our God is so loving that he's willing to let you into heaven still despite that flaw. I say go fuck yourself, Joel Osteen. This is hate. It may not be as explicit or in your face as other hate preachers, but it's hate and this rhetoric influences public policy because evangelicals in this country are the most powerful political group. They're represented by one of the two major parties in this country. So we have to start pushing back against these religious zealots, these Christian nationalists, because like it or not, they're crafting public policy that affects all of our lives. Many of them have infiltrated Congress. Some of them are serving on the highest court in the land. And today we just found out about some specifics of one of those Supreme Court justices. As The Guardian explains, the founder of the People of Praise, a secretive charismatic Christian group that counts the Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett as a member, was described in a sworn affidavit filed in the 1990s as exerting almost total control over one of the group's female members, including making all decisions about her finances and dating relationships. The court documents also described alleged instances of a sexualized atmosphere in the home of the founder, Kevin Ranigan, and his wife, Dorothy Ranigan. So the church of Amy Coney Barrett asserts complete domination over women, and then shockingly, her judicial philosophy, if we want to call it that, also happens to agree with the teachings of her church. Women shouldn't be able to control their own bodies. A popular propagandist on the far right, Matt Walsh, who's a self-described theocratic fascist, recently admitted that gender transitions should be banned. Full stop. We're not talking about gender-affirming care for children. He's saying even adults should not be able to transition. So these Christian nationalists literally want to control every single aspect of your life, right down to your gender expression. If you're male assigned at birth, sorry, you can't wear that dress, you can't paint your nails, you can't grow out your hair because we say so, because our God says that that's bad, so we're going to make sure that we force you to live in the way that our religion dictates. Now let's go back to that video of these brave young ladies protesting at Joel Osteen's Lakewood Church. The reason why this protest is good is because they are confronting these ideas at the source. These theocratic beliefs aren't spewed in a vacuum, and the backwards beliefs they drill into the heads of their congregation profoundly affects public policy, which is why I unequivocally accept this action. Now, people will say, well, Mike, what about other religions that hold bigoted beliefs? We absolutely must confront those bigoted beliefs, but the reason why it's important to target Christians is because they have political power in this country. It's not Muslims who are saying none of us can eat pork because they're not allowed to. It's not Jewish Americans who are saying every single parent must circumcise their children. It's Christians who are dictating how we live in society. Then they're showing us that they're going to ban women from controlling their own body, but it's not going to stop there. Contraception is next. Gay marriage is next. It's going to keep going and going until they roll back the clock to the point where this country is unrecognizable. It's no longer the secular country that it once was, despite our secular constitution. So we cannot allow these Christians to impose their views on all of us. And if they're going to continue to preach hate, and remain tax exempt, if they're going to continue to influence public policy and remain tax exempt, 
sorry, we're going to confront you at the source. Because if you're going to make our lives hell, we're going to make your lives hell too. Sorry. Did you feel abandoned in that moment by police, by the people who are supposed to protect you? Absolutely. After everything, I get more angry because you have a bulletproof vest. I had nothing. I had nothing. You're supposed to protect and serve. There is no excuse for their actions. And I will never forget them. I will never forget them. How many students were in your classroom when the shooter came in? 11 students. So the shooter killed every single student in your classroom. Yes, ma'am. That's when I got you thinking, you know. This family lost one. This family lost one. I lost 11 that day. And I just went to my parents and said, I'm sorry. I tried my best. Of what I was told to do. Please don't be angry with me. We just heard from Arnufo Reyes, a teacher in Uvalde who survived a mass shooting. And as you saw, he recalled the details that were just incredibly gruesome. All 11 of his students were massacred during the school shooting in Uvalde. Now, thankfully, he survived. He was shot multiple times. He's already had multiple surgeries. Today, he had another surgery. And these stories, these firsthand accounts are incredibly important because for all of us, we have to keep this issue salient in our minds, right? When you hear about a school shooting or some mass shooting in the United States, it's easy to only be affected by that for a day or two. And then eventually, you know, it kind of dies down and we stop talking about it. And when we stop talking about it, then pressure on politicians dissipates. And we have to keep the pressure high on these politicians. And that means we continuously engage with this particular subject. Um, now, there's another clip that I want to show you. But before we get to that, I, I just got to get to this article from USA Today that explains how mass shootings have not stopped since Uvalde. At least 17 people were killed Friday to Sunday, the deadliest weekend of mass shooting gun violence this year, according to a USA Today analysis. In Philadelphia, Chattanooga, Tennessee, Saginaw, Michigan, Omaha, Nebraska, and other towns and cities, there were at least a dozen shootings that killed or injured four or more people, according to data compiled by the Gun Violence Archive and analyzed by USA Today. At least 82 people were wounded or killed. There have been at least 245 mass shootings this year, according to the archive. Last year, there were 692 mass shootings, the highest number of mass shootings of any year since 2014. The same weekend last year, June 4th to 6th, seven people were killed and 53 wounded in mass shootings, according to gun violence archive data. In 2020, the first weekend of June saw six mass shooting deaths and 50 people wounded, the archive's data shows. So that article confirms that mass shootings are a common occurrence in this country. We only hear about one or two every once in a while, but they happen all the time. Oftentimes they're not reported or they're underreported, but make no mistake about it. They're always happening across the country. 
Now, last Wednesday, we published a video to this channel talking about the 17 mass shootings that took place since Uvalde, and I recorded that video on Tuesday evening. By the time it went live on Wednesday morning, the video was already out of date. It was already outdated because another mass shooting had occurred and the number had changed from 17 to 18. It is almost impossible to keep up because it keeps happening in the United States. And I just have to remind everyone that this is the only country where mass shootings are a common phenomenon like this. This doesn't happen in Japan. This doesn't happen in Canada. Sure, mass shootings do occur in these countries, but never at this frequency where every single weekend we are not seeing one or two, but multiple mass shootings. Now, I've got another video from Mr. Reyes' interview, and he explains very clearly what is needed to stop this. And spoiler alert, it's obviously gun control. Reyes says no training could have prepared them for this. Even though the school had extensive protocols, he says laws have to change. It all happened too fast. Training, no training, all kinds of training. Nothing sets you ready, gets you ready for this. We trained our kids to sit under the table. And that's what I thought of, you know, at the time. But we set them up to be like ducks. You can give us all the training you want, but it's uh, gun laws have to change. It won't never change unless they change the, the laws. Reyes says he doesn't think he can ever return to a classroom, but he's making it his mission to honor the lives of his students and two of his fellow teachers. The only thing that I know that I will not let these children and my coworkers die in vain. Absolutely, I will not. I will go anywhere to the end of the world to not let my students die in vain. They didn't deserve this. Nobody in this world deserves this kind of pain. No mother, nobody deserves this. I will go to the end of the world to make sure things get changed. Notice how he unequivocally said that the laws have to change. He was very specific there, and he added that no amount of training can prepare you for this. And it's so important to hear a survivor say this, because he doesn't have a political agenda. He's not paid by the gun industry. He's not taking money from, you know, the Brady campaign. This is just a human being who went through something that is unimaginable. I can't fathom the mental trauma that he's going to deal with for the rest of his life. And what he's saying is obviously the laws have to change. Now we're seeing solutions proposed by Republican politicians that are either nonsensical. Ted Cruz is floating door reform. Governor Te uh, uh, Greg Abbott of Texas also floated this as a solution. And then the other solution, which is what Republicans really want, which isn't actually a solution, though, is more guns. In fact, many Republicans have called for arming teachers, a position that's becoming increasingly popular among the American public if you look at certain public opinion polls. In fact, Ohio Republicans passed the bill to arm teachers, and Republican Governor Mike DeWine has already vocalized his intent to sign that into law. The problem is not all mass shootings take place in schools. Sure, it's a lot more tragic when children are involved but not all mass shootings happen in schools they happen at grocery stores they happen in movie theaters they happen everywhere so arming teachers isn't going to solve the gun violence problem adding more guns isn't going to solve the gun violence problem more guns 
is directly correlated with more gun violence. Obviously, we know that. But the reason why gun manufacturers want this to be a policy is because this will increase their profits. Imagine state budgets dedicating millions of dollars to gun manufacturers for firearms for teachers. So it's all about the profits in this country. We live in a late stage capitalist society and everything is about profits. It's profits over people. That's all that matters. CNN's Manu Raju spoke with GOP Senator Tom Tillis, and he claims that they just simply can't get Republicans to agree to raising the legal age to purchase firearms from 18 to 21. And that's because the gun manufacturers who bribed these politicians don't want to restrict how many people can purchase firearms because then that means that they make less money. Sure, maybe more lives will be saved, but profits, that's what matters to them. So how can you get Republicans to agree to policies that specifically fly in the face of what these gun manufacturers and gun interest groups want? The answer is, I don't think that you can. Now we're seeing action currently. We're, we're listening to you know Chuck Schumer say that, oh, we're giving them more time. But understand what I think is happening currently, and this is an overly cynical approach, so if you have more optimism, feel free to disregard what I'm saying. But what we're seeing is stalling right now this is still fresh on all of our minds we're hearing people who were involved in the shooting who survived a mother who saved her two children explain how horrific this was and so long as the media continues to cover this it's going to be at the top of americans minds which means that politicians have to pretend to care and pretend as if they're working out the details but the second something else happens and we get distracted politicians aren't going to take action. So I think it's really important that we continue to talk about this and we keep this high on our agendas. Otherwise, politicians, you know, um, they're going to not do anything because this is what they do. And even if we keep the pressure on them, they still might not do anything. So, you know, it's important that we kind of entrench ourselves with these stories and we listen to these stories because we can't forget it. It's easy to listen to the news about mass shootings and just like take it as this abstract thing and acknowledge that it's bad but you know it's a completely different thing to really hear these gruesome details and grapple with it and specifically not you and i but the people who aren't convinced that we need to address this with gun control so one last thing i want to leave you with is um a snippet of matthew mcconaughey's speech from the White House press briefing that took place today. This is an individual who grew up in Uvalde, Texas, and he cares about this issue. In fact, he wrote an op-ed that was published by the Austin American Statesman where he explains why this matters to him. He is the father of a kindergarten teacher, so it hits close to home. Um, and I think that this is important to have celebrities speak up on this, especially ones where you know this happens in their hometowns is important because people listen to celebrities. So I want to leave you with a particular moment from his speech that's important because he explains how gruesome this is. My day wore green high top converse with a heart she had hand drawn on the right toe because they represented her love of nature. Camilla's got these shoes. Can you show these shoes, please? Wore these every day. Green converse with a heart on the right toe. These are the same green converse on her feet that turned out to be the only clear evidence that could identify her after the shooting. How about that? We also met a cosmetologist 
Right, she was well-versed in mortuary makeup. That's the task of making the victims appear as peaceful and natural as possible for their open casket viewings. These bodies were very different. They needed much more than makeup to be presentable. They needed extensive restoration. Why? Due to the exceptionally large exit wounds of an AR-15 rifle. Most of the body so mutilated that only DNA test or green converse could identify them. Many children were left not only dead, but hollow. So whatever you do, do not forget about this issue. Keep this issue at the top of your mind. There are other things that are really important. Climate change. Roe v. Wade will be overturned very soon. But make sure that you do not reduce this pressure on politicians. At every town hall, you ask them about this. If you have the opportunity, call your representative, email them, keep the pressure up. And even, you know, exerting a maximum amount of pressure might not be conducive to change. But at least they're feeling the pressure because at a minimum, they're pretending right now. But the second we all turn away and get distracted by something else, they stop even putting up this facade that they're trying to work on some sort of a deal. So keep the pressure up and don't let these deaths be in vain. We now know that Dr. Oz will be facing off against John Fetterman in Pennsylvania's Senate race this November. And I was a little bit worried at first, not necessarily because I think that Dr. Oz is a good candidate. In fact, I think he's a terrible candidate. But the problem is that he has a lot of name recognition. This is a celebrity who's had a television show for years, and name recognition goes a really long way in US politics. But John Fetterman just released his first general election campaign ad today, and most of my fears have faded away because John Fetterman is going to be running a very solid campaign if this is any indication of what's to come. Take a look. You good? People have been trying to label me my entire life. I do not look like a typical politician. I don't even look like a typical person. John Fetterman knows Pennsylvania through and through. From York, played football in Reading. Raising his family in Braddock, a steel town. He's looked different and been different his entire life. As mayor, Fetterman helped rebuild his town. As lieutenant governor, he reformed the office. Now the big guy is running for Senate to take on Washington. This is a race for the future of every community across Pennsylvania. For every small town or person that's felt left behind. For every job left and factory closed. For every person that works hard but can't get ahead as costs keep rising. Those decisions were made for us by people that don't know us. And that's exactly who we're running against. Pennsylvania is our home and it's worth fighting for. I'm John Fetterman and I approve this message. Okay, Dr. Oz should be worried. That should horrify Dr. Oz. He should see that and shit himself. Because how do you, a celebrity, a rich person who's worth tens of millions of dollars compete with that authenticity, with that blue collar appeal, with that originality. I mean, John Fetterman is speaking about how he's different. You know, he's not like everyone else, but at the same time, even though he's unique and doesn't look like a politician, he shares uh, the struggle or shared the struggle of people in the state of Pennsylvania. I mean, this is an incredible ad 
And I wish that more Democrats would do what John Fetterman is doing. But the problem is that a lot of them lack authenticity. A lot of them were kind of privileged and didn't have that experience. So that's why John Fetterman can relate with normal people. And what I am anticipating now is that Dr. Oz will try to copy John Fetterman. He's going to run a different campaign now. He'll make that general election pivot and pretend to be this anti-establishment, you know, normal blue collar guy. But the problem is there is an authenticity gap between John Fetterman and Dr. Oz. John Fetterman seems like a normal human being, whereas Dr. Oz seems like a phony. I mean, you've all seen it by now, but take a look at one of the last ads that he ran in the uh, GOP primary. My father taught me how to handle my first gun. I taught my son Oliver how to do the same. I've been shooting and hunting my whole life. So when people say I won't support guns, they're dead wrong. Boom! Other conservatives know that I'm strong on the Second Amendment. Ted Nugent, Rick Perry, President Trump. But our Second Amendment is not just about hunting. It's about our constitutional right to protect ourselves from intruders or an overly intrusive government. So as your next U.S. Senator, I will fight for our constitutional rights. How authentic. I mean, it feels like that's a parody ad. And if I were a GOP voter, I would see that and be insulted because he's very clearly trying to pander to you. If you're a Republican in the state of Pennsylvania, you should feel insulted that he thinks you're that unintelligent. But maybe you are because you voted for him. So, I mean, it's just how how are you supposed to, you know, convince people that you care when you're a celebrity? You're as out of touch as you possibly can be in this country. Now, what makes John Fetterman's ad, I think, more powerful, or I should say what will make it more powerful, is where he's choosing to broadcast it. Because we all know that um, individuals like Sean Hannity, they're very invested in this race, being friends with Dr. Oz. He helped Dr. Oz win the GOP primary, and unquestionably, he will try to help Dr. Oz win the general election so he can become a senator. So they're going to be attacking John Fetterman relentlessly, comparing him to you know Bernie Sanders because he endorsed Bernie in 2016, calling him a crazy socialist. This is what Connor Lamb did against him in the Democratic Party primary. So the attacks will come from Fox News. So what is John Fetterman doing to counter that? Well, he's going to place this ad right on Fox News. As Catherine Fung of Newsweek explains, John Fetterman, Pennsylvania's Democratic Senate candidate and a well-known ally of Bernie Sanders, is turning to Fox News to appeal to voters in the upcoming general election, airing two of his first TV ads against Trump-backed GOP candidate Mehmet Oz on the conservative network. The Fetterman campaign purchased two spots on Fox News in the Pittsburgh, Scranton, and Johnson markets that will run from Tuesday through June 14th, according to Politico. A campaign spokesperson said Fetterman's team has spent $250,000 dollars for the week-long ads, adding that we plan to re-up the bi-weekly as the GOP attacks keep coming. Other Democrats need to take note, because when you see that the attacks are going to come from Fox News, what you do is you buy ads during these shows that will inevitably be attacking you and you debunk the myths that they're spreading. It's it's a brilliant strategy, and I get why some people might be against this, because it feels gross to give Fox News money, but folks, this is an election, and you want the person who's the better candidate to win. So if that means advertising on Fox News and going where most eyeballs are going to be, that's what you've got to do. So I think that buying ads in these particular markets in Pennsylvania is brilliant because we know the attacks will be ongoing. And we know that Dr. Oz already has 
an advantage because of name recognition. But if John Fetterman can counter that and counter the attacks, it increases his chances. And these ads are incredible. It should appeal to even some of Fox News' viewers, assuming that their brain hasn't completely rotted by watching too much Fox News. But look, it's not like John Fetterman is the best candidate ever, right? There's areas where I have my disagreements with him. You know, I don't like his stance on Israel-Palestine or fracking. But even with these things that I disagree with, if he were to be elected, he'd be one of the most progressive senators in the country. And that's not saying much because I get that the bar is really low, but it's still better than most of the people already in the Senate. And he'll certainly be better than Dr. Oz, who's just going to go along with the GOP's agenda. I don't think he really has any authentic beliefs or he even has a core political ideology he's doing this because he's an opportunist and maybe he's just bored being a tv doctor i'm not necessarily sure but either way it's really important that john fetterman does everything he can and i think that so far he's off to a really great start the one thing that worries me is that you know currently if you look at generic polls just republican versus democrat Republicans have a massive leg up, and a lot of this stems from Biden's unpopularity. You know, it kind of trickles down. If the president is unpopular, then that usually affects the House and the Senate. So I hope that that doesn't necessarily hurt Fetterman. It's hard to say, but either way, right now, at least at the beginning of the general election campaign, he's doing everything that he should be doing. And this should absolutely scare the shit out of Dr. Oz. I'd be afraid if I were him. So a few weeks ago on the program, we talked about the DCCC chair, Sean Maloney, choosing to run in Maunder Jones's district, essentially primarying a member of Congress who he, as chair of the DCCC, is supposed to be helping to elect. Now, it's a conflict of interest because as DCCC chair, you control the resources for the whole party. So how are you supposed to be fair in this instance and distribute money to somebody who you're running against and also to yourself, it's just, it's mind-boggling to think that this is acceptable, but Nancy Pelosi kind of gave him her blessing, and Sean Maloney is now running in Mondor Jones's district. Now, if you read articles with regard to this particular story, the excuse was that, well, you know, Sean Maloney, he lives in this district. Uh, even though Mondaire Jones represents more people in this district, Sean Maloney now lives in this district after redistricting, and it's just a little bit safer. Right. I mean, it's still a heavily Democratic Party leading district, but it's a bit safer for Sean Maloney. Now, I speculated that this was nothing more than a ploy to just kick out a progressive member of Congress, but it really was a lot deeper than that. And we're learning now that this was basically a ploy to kick out two progressive members of Congress simultaneously. Because we're learning, thanks to an article by the New York Intelligencer released on June 3rd, that senior Democrats were trying to goad Mondaire Jones into primarying Jamal Bowman. Now, you would think instinctively that, okay, that's going to lead to one of them winning and one of them losing. But no, because Jamal Bowman is already being primaried by a centrist Democrat. So imagine the scenario where Mondaire Jones runs against Jamal Bowman, who's also running against the centrist Democrat. What happens? Well, the progressives will split the votes, and that could give the corporate Democrat a plurality, meaning you could, in one election cycle, kick off two progressives. Two. Just completely kick them off the ballot. Leave them out of Congress. Now, this article that we're about to read is so important because it explains why Democrats were trying to do this. 
The intelligencer explains Jones, a lefty lawmaker who pushed out a longtime incumbent from her Westchester seat in 2020, publicly accused Maloney of trying to nudge him into running against Jamal Bowman, another black progressive who defeated a longtime incumbent in 2020 in a Bronx district. Jones accused Maloney of not playing fair. Progressives and Ocasio-Cortez rallied and said that Maloney, as head of the House campaign arm, would have an unfair advantage because of his ties to the donor class and should resign his position. Torres, meanwhile, who has always had an uneasy relationship with Jones and Maloney piled on with additional criticism of Maloney. Congressional campaign aides say that in fact, Jones had been considering running against Bowman all along and that he was prodded on by senior House Democrats, members of the Congressional Black Caucus, and forces aligned with Elliot Engel, a longtime incumbent Bowman defeated in 2020, all of whom wanted to get rid of the ultra-progressive Bowman. Jones polled running in the suburban district to his north and the Bronx-centered one to his South, finding that he would win the primary in the suburbs, but would be at risk of losing a general election there, and that he would lose to Bowman in the Bronx. Jones, though, a squad-adjacent member of Congress who often talks of abolishing the filibuster and expanding the Supreme Court, dreaded life as a member of a suburban swing district should he be able to eke out a win, while much of his staff threatened to quit if he decided to run against Bowman. Jones then astutely raised the ruckus about Maloney's maneuvers to rally progressives to his side, and shocked everyone by announcing that he wasn't going to run against Maloney, Torres, or Bowman, but in the new district created in Lower Manhattan and Brownstone, Brooklyn, saying that even though he didn't live there, it was his spiritual home since it was also where the Stonewall Inn is. Already running there, however, was de Blasio. The district includes much of de Blasio's former council district, but it also includes many white progressives of the kind who turned on de Blasio during his years when he lived at Gracie Mansion. So first of all, let me just say that I'm very relieved that Mondaire Jones is not running against Bowman. I don't care if he runs against Maloney or Torres, but to run against Bowman would be horrible because then you're putting progressives against each other and that could destroy the Progressive Caucus. And when I say Progressive Caucus, I don't necessarily mean the whole Congressional Progressive Caucus because it's already useless, but I'm talking about like the handful of progressives, the squad and squad adjacent members who are really all we have. Um, so I'm glad he's not doing that. But the fact that he did some polling there to maybe test the waters and maybe was open to it is horrifying, but he gets credit for not doing it. And knowing that his staff threatened to resign in mass if he did challenge Bowman, that is really important because it tells me that, you know, these staffers, their heart is in the right place. And as disappointing as progressives can be sometimes, at least there are people in their staff who can kind of guide them in the right direction. Now, I've got to get to this portion from the article here where um, senior House Democrats and members of the Congressional Black Caucus and forces unnamed conspicuously who were aligned with Elliot Engel wanted him to run against Bowman. So years later, Forces who were aligned with Engel, i.e. Democratic Party establishment leaders, were plotting and scheming. They fabricated this ploy to try to take out someone who took out one of their members. That is incredibly dirty. I mean, let me remind you that during the Black Lives Matter protests after George Floyd was murdered, Elliot Engel had the audacity to admit on hot mic that he was only there speaking at one of these events because he's in a primary and he wouldn't care if he wasn't being primaried. So this is the person who senior Democrats and members of the Congressional Black Caucus are trying to carry water for.
it's just truly despicable. And in the event, let's say hypothetically, Mondar Jones went for this scheme and he fell for it. Democratic Party leadership doesn't care about him as well. Like the goal is to knock out him and Bowman in order for the corporate centrist Democrat to get a plurality. Now, they probably were whispering sweet nothings into his ear, telling him that he could move up in the party, get leadership. And this is all speculation, but we know the way that these Democrats plot and scheme behind closed doors. But I'm glad that Mondaire Jones did not fall for it because he would have been fucking over not only Bowman, but himself as well. Now, um, Mondaire Jones had the opportunity on national television to condemn Maloney or not even condemn, just vocalize mere disappointment in the decision to run in his district, call out Maloney, DCCC chair. But as you're going to see, Mondaire Jones does not do that. Before I let you go, I want to ask you about the redistricting in your state, which has, um, as you know, created a bit of an uproar among Democrats. You've essentially been pushed into another district by the head of the national party arm on the House side, Sean Patrick Maloney, who is redistricted out of his own seat. A lot of people see this as the new maps putting black incumbents in jeopardy. Are you disappointed with your party's moves in New York as it relates to this? Look, redistricting has wrought a lot of havoc throughout the state. We see member-on-member -member primaries. I didn't want to be in a member-on-member -member primary, especially as I'm working hard to save American democracy as a leader in the fight to do precisely that. I'm proud to be running in a district that has given so much to me. Many folks know that I made history back in 2020 as our nation's first openly gay black member of Congress. Well, this district, Lower Manhattan and parts of Brooklyn, this gave birth to the queer liberation movement, and yet it's never had an openly gay representative in Congress. And I'm proud to say I've been fighting for the communities that comprise this district, whether it was passing the American Rescue Plan, uh, being a lead negotiator in passage of the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, also known as the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill and the House version of Build Back Better, and more recently fighting to pass the domestic terrorism statute out of the House, and of course now fighting to end gun violence. I'll put my record up against anybody's in this beautifully diverse district that I know very well and that I've worked in and that I've spent so much time in. Congressman Mondaire Jones, thank you very much. I know you had to duck out of that markup for us. I appreciate it. Appreciate you making the time for us in such an Thanks important Thanks so much day. for having me. Look, I appreciate the fact that he wants to pivot to policy substance, but you had an opportunity to just say that you were disappointed in Maloney and you didn't even do that. Now I get that you're horrified because Maloney is the DCCC chair. He controls the cash, so if you piss him off, you kind of fuck yourself over, especially considering you're going to be facing a Democrat with a lot of name recognition, Bill de Blasio. But, I mean, if Democrats in Congress who are progressive refuse to call out leadership, even when they explicitly fuck them over and push them out of their districts, I mean, do you understand why you have no power in Congress? Do you understand why people outside view members of the squad as ineffective because you have the right ideas but strategically i don't know what you're doing and when it comes to just having a spine it seems like progressives in congress rarely have a spine i mean i don't know what the fuck is going on in congress like it's worrying to know that you know they have some sort of control over you it's just if you if you continue to be fearful of Democratic Party leadership and not name names and call them out when they fuck you over, especially, then I, I don't know how you're going to be effective. But I don't want to be too down on Mondaire Jones because, you know, he isn't responsible for this predicament. It's the corporate Democrat, Sean Maloney, who's responsible for this. But at a minimum, you've got to fight back. They're fucking you over. He pushed you out of your district. So I get that he controls the money. 
but he pushed you out of your district. How are you not fucking irate right now? Holy shit. Can you imagine if an incumbent progressive, if AOC chose to run against some corporate Democrat, if she chose to run against Sean Maloney, we would never hear the end of it. We'd hear about how, oh my God, these lefties want to sow discord in the Democratic Party caucus. They don't care about unity. But yet when it happens to the left, they're supposed to shut up and take it. And unfortunately, they do shut up and take it, which is perhaps why the Democratic Party's leaders do it, because they know that you're just going to sit down and shut the fuck up like good little drones. Look, if you're thinking of running for Congress, don't do it unless you're very, very assertive. You can have all the right policies, but as we're learning, it's just not enough. You have to condemn leadership because they are part of the problem. Their corruption, their ideological inconsistency is why we're in this state, why fascism is on the rise. And it's because they're ineffectual. They refuse to address the material conditions in this country. And if we have a progressive wing, that's not going to do anything to meaningfully condemn that and call them out and at least educate voters about what they're doing, what leadership is doing to fuck them over then there's just no hope. So overall, you know, this this story is really frustrating. Mondaire Jones shouldn't have to run in a different district, but here we are. He at least did the right thing and isn't running against Bowman, but I think that all members of the squad and squad-adjacent people in Congress should take this as a warning that they're coming after you and they will find some way to fuck you over. It's just a matter of time. So prepare for that and unite and condemn leadership when they do things like this. Earlier today, a man was arrested for plotting to murder Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh and subsequently kill himself. As ABC News reports, a California man was charged with attempted murder of a U.S. Supreme Court justice for allegedly making threats against Justice Brett Kavanaugh and showing up near his Maryland home armed, federal court records show. The suspect was angry over the recent mass shooting at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, and the leaked draft of the Supreme Court's decision impacting Roe v. Wade, according to an affidavit from an FBI agent submitted in support of a criminal complaint in the U.S. District Court on Wednesday. The man, identified by the Department of Justice as 26-year-old Nicholas Roski of Simi Valley, was allegedly spotted by two U.S. Marshals wearing black clothes and carrying a backpack getting out of a cab in front of Kavanaugh's house at approximately 1.05 a.m. Wednesday, according to the affidavit. A Glock 17 pistol, two magazines, pepper spray, zip ties, a hammer, screwdriver, nail pouch, crowbar, pistol light, and duct tape were in the backpack according to the affidavit. The suspect then allegedly called the Montgomery County Emergency Communication Center to say he wanted to kill a Supreme Court justice according to the affidavit. Okay, very serious. Very, very serious. And this should go without saying, but of course I unequivocally condemn this. This is seemingly coming from either the left side or the liberal side, and I don't approve of this sort of political violence. I understand that people are frustrated with the way that the Supreme Court is undemocratically rolling back civil rights but if you think that our political system is unstable currently because of hyperpolarization imagine how destabilized it will become if the way that we resort to solving political problems is by killing politicians you don't want that i promise you i studied you know regimes where this is a common phenomenon and it never ends well for anyone so of course this isn't the environment that i want but What's really interesting is that um, Brett Kavanaugh was lucky 
because the police acted here, unlike the children in Uvalde. So it's nice to kind of compare these two situations because it really demonstrates to us all the way that the lives of elites are valued much more than the lives of just normal Americans, even children. Um, and the response politically from Mitch McConnell has been to call for immediate action, even though it's been weeks since 19 children were murdered in Uvalde, Texas, and dozens more were killed in other mass shootings since then. Mitch McConnell, you know, He's pretending to care right now about gun control, and the Senate Republicans are currently talking with Senate Democrats. I think they're probably stalling because it's evident what you need to do. But yet, when it comes to this issue, where Supreme Court justice was in danger, but the assassination plot was foiled, well, nope, we need action today. HuffPost reporter Philip Lewis writes, Mitch McConnell calls on Democrats to pass Supreme Court security bill after man arrested outside Brett Kavanaugh's home. House Democrats must pass this bill and they need to do it today. No more fiddling around with this. They need to pass it today before the sun sets. More from McConnell. This is courtesy of Mediaite. McConnell claimed House Democrats have been blocking a bill related to the security of Supreme Court justices in the wake of the unconscionable leak despite predictions that their safety could be threatened. This is exactly the kind of event that many were the unhinged, reckless, apocalyptic rhetoric from prominent figures toward the court going back many months, and especially in recent weeks, could make more likely. Now, he's referring to the bill that passed in the Senate with unanimous consent that provides police protection to Supreme Court justices and their families. Now, it's interesting that he wants this passed today when nobody was hurt, thankfully. But he has stalled gun control for decades. The bodies have piled up and there's been no urgency for Mitch McConnell to act. But the second an elite is in danger, you better take action before the sun sets. He is demonstrating to you that he doesn't care about normal Americans. He refuses to act, blocks action for decades, but when an elite is in danger, that's when he's got to take action. Isn't this astonishing? This should be insulting to every single American that these leaders, Mitch McConnell believes that we don't deserve security. Your children do not deserve security immediately, but Supreme Court justices do. Okay, you want this passed today? Pass gun control today. We'll pass this when you vote on gun control. If we don't get gun control, sorry, we don't get this. If you want that, you've got to give us this because 19 children were slaughtered just a couple of weeks ago. Nobody was injured in this instance. It could have gone bad, but it didn't. But the security of children is a much more salient matter than what you're asking for here. How do we even know, though, that more police is going to help the situation? Maybe Brett Kavanaugh needed an extra door on his house. Are you telling us that praying hasn't worked? I mean, has Brett Kavanaugh not been praying hard enough? Why are these solutions not acceptable for you but they're acceptable when children are murdered. Do you understand the disconnect here? And this is essentially what people responded saying. Patton Oswalt tweeted, just put one door on Kavanaugh's house and arm his family, problem solved. Ethan Klein of H3 added, Brady boy obviously just needs to get a gun. How many doors does he have? The answer is a good guy with a gun. Are his kids strapped? What about his wife? Not to mention, how are we gonna pay for this? Can we really afford this? Do you understand how preposterous this is? Of course, if public officials are in danger, then action must be taken to protect them. But there's just no urgency whatsoever to protect children who don't feel safe in schools. An 11-year-old student who survived Uvalde 
by rubbing her dead friend's blood on her body and playing dead, just testified today explaining how she does not feel safe in schools. And there's no urgency for Mitch McConnell right there. None. Who knows how long this is going to take. In fact, after the Uvalde shooting, Congress went on break for Memorial Day. But yet he's saying, no, 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 you're going to pass this today. You have to understand here. This is Mitch McConnell and Republicans broadcasting to people that they don't value your life as much as they value theirs. When elites are in danger, action must be taken immediately. But when it comes to school shooting after school shooting after white supremacist terror attack in a grocery store after another massacre, Mitch McConnell blocks action for decades. I mean, please understand, take away from this the reality that is clear. They don't care about you. Your children can be slaughtered, and the only time they care about bloodshed is if it could potentially harm them. How about we protect everyone and take action? Well, the donors wouldn't approve of that. See, the reason why Mitch McConnell is okay with taking action to protect Brett Kavanaugh is because, I mean, what donors are lobbying against protecting Supreme Court justices? But when it comes to protecting children, you know, gun manufacturers don't want to see the age to purchase firearms be raised from 18 to 21 because think of how many thousands of sales they're going to miss out on, how much profits could increase from that. Do you understand? It's all about money and they just don't give a fuck about you. Remember this moment and never forget it because our leaders are saying that your children can die and they don't give a fuck. They only care about their own asses. That should tell you something about our government officials. Secretary Blinken, what about Sharina Abu Akleh? She was murdered by Israeli forces, right? CNN just agreed to this. These are your two greatest allies in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia Again, and Israel. They uh, have murdered American journalists and there have been absolutely no repercussions. And you're sitting up here talking about the freedom of press and democracy. The United States is denying sovereignty to tens of millions of people around the world with draconian sanctions for electing leaders that you do not like. Why is there no accountability for Israel or Saudi Arabia for murdering journalists? It is one of the most dangerous places in the world to be a journalist in Palestine. I deplore the loss of uh, Shireen. Um, she was a remarkable journalist, an American citizen, uh, as you all know. And there too, we are determined to follow the facts and get to the truth of what happened. Secretary Blinken, no, all due respect. The, no, with all due respect, I'm sorry, with respect, they have not yet been established. Yes, looking it has. For, no, they have not. If we are looking for an independent, credible investigation, when that investigation happens, we will follow the facts wherever they lead. It's, it's uh, as straightforward as that. That has not yet happened, but it's something that we very much want to see happen. And we'll have time after Thank the you. panel, of course, Thank to talk you. more. That was Secretary of State Antony Blinken being confronted by journalist Abby Martin about the U.S. government's hypocrisy when it comes to freedom of the press. Now, once this video was published, Abby Martin took to Twitter to explain, I wanted to keep pressure on the U.S. government for Israel's murder of journalist Shireen Abu Akleh and hypocrisy of using press freedom to kill people with sanctions. Now, it's important to note that Antony Blinken, in his response to Abby Martin, was absolutely lying. We definitively know that Israel targeted this journalist 
and murdered her. The CNN article that Abby Martin referenced in that video confirms just that. The Israeli military says it is not clear who fired the fatal shot. In a preliminary inquiry, the army said there was a possibility Abu Akleh was hit either by indiscriminate Palestinian gunfire or by an Israeli sniper positioned about 200 meters, about 656 feet away, in an exchange of fire with Palestinian gunmen, though neither Israel nor anyone else provided evidence showing armed Palestinians within a clear line of fire from Abu Akleh. But an investigation by CNN offers new evidence, including two videos of the scene of the shooting, that there was no active combat nor any Palestinian militants near Abu Akleh in the moments leading up to her death. Videos obtained by CNN corroborated by a testimony from eight eyewitnesses, an audio forensic analyst, and an explosive weapons expert suggest that Abu Akleh was shot dead in a targeted attack by Israeli forces. So Antony Blinken there is feigning ignorance when we know what happened. And look, I'm sorry, we knew from the beginning that Israel was lying. But yet, now that we have definitive proof, he's still pretending as if, well, we've really got to get to the bottom of this, and I definitely care, wink wink. Sure. Now, as for Saudi Arabia, a 2021 report from The New York Times using U.S. intelligence released by the Biden administration confirms that Saudi Crown Prince approved of the assassination of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. However, the Biden administration refused to penalize Saudi Arabia because, quote, the risk of damaging American interests was too great. I'm going to repeat that quote again. The risk of damaging American interests was too great, so we couldn't penalize this regime that murdered a journalist, an American journalist. But yet we care about human rights and press freedom. And in fact, after that, the Biden administration sold Saudi Arabia weapons after saying he wouldn't do that, breaking another campaign promise. And the reason why we want to maintain this relationship is because strategically, Saudi Arabia is valuable to the United States, not just geopolitically, but because they have oil. So, I mean, this is what the United States does. They virtue signal, but they never live by the standards that they espouse. They hold other countries to higher standards than they hold themselves to, and they pick and choose who they're going to support and prop up based on their interests. And it's truly disgusting. Now, uh, there's another video that I want to share uh, where Antony Blinken was again confronted by journalist Eugene per year this time. And um, he's going to ask why it's the case that the United States' standards for democracy is so ass backwards. That's not his phrasing, but just watch. I wonder how you justify the invitation of Dr. Ariel Henry from Haiti when he is uh, actually governing with no constitutional mandate. His government has been implicated in many different crimes, including potentially the murder of the past president. Countries like Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua are being uh, excluded from the summit of the Americas because you deem them to not be democratic. But how can you use that as your justification when you have the so-called prime minister of Haiti who is ruling under no sort of democratic mandate here? Yeah, we, like many other countries, are determined to get things back to the facts of what happened in Haiti, including the assassination uh, of the previous uh, prime minister. Uh, we're determined to find the facts wherever uh, they lead and to whomever they lead. Well, but does democracy does democracy only matter if they disagree with the United States government? What is, what is, what is what is your what is your actual basis for saying a government is undemocratic and another one it can't be invited and another one that's undemocratic can be invited?
does democracy matter only if they disagree with the United States? The answer to that is yes. It's absolutely yes. Um, now, notice how every single thing that he said there was completely hollow and vacuous. I mean, he responded to that question as a customer service chatbot on Amazon would respond to a question. It's like he's this NPC. And whenever a tough question like this about the United States' hypocrisy comes up, you know, this NPC has this automatic dialogue tree that immediately initiates and he responds in a very, you know, non-committal way. Well, of course, we want to get to the bottom of this and we're all concerned and thoughts and prayers and yada, yada, yada. It's just... This is why people around the world don't take the United States seriously, because we're so shamelessly hypocritical. It's why legitimacy-wise, we've been declining for decades, because we do what we want, you know, terrorize these countries, invade countries who didn't attack us, and then we claim, oh, we care about democracy and human rights. Unreal. Now, there's one more video that I want to show you, not of Antony Blinken, but of OAS chief Luis Amagro. Now, this is the organization which successfully pulled off a coup in Bolivia following unfounded Trumpian allegations of election fraud. Now, a member of the Party of Socialism and Liberation confronted him, and uh, as you're going to see, he was relentless, and eventually he was put in handcuffs and uh, escorted out. Off the property. And he was killed. You're here. You're here. To lecture about media freedom when you install a dictatorship that murders journalists and murders innocent people. You have blood on your hands. Because of your lies, there was a coup in Bolivia, a coup against the democratically elected government. And that dictatorship that you helped install massacred 36 people, 36 innocent people who are protesting for the restoration of their democracy, for the restoration of the independence of their country. In the towns of Sacaba and Sekata, people were protesting peacefully, indigenous people, workers, women, students demanding the restoration of that democracy that you helped destroy. Destroy because the United States wanted to plunder the resources, the Bolivia, the gold, all of the mineral resources, the gas of Bolivia, the corporations in Wall Street and in the United States wanted to loot the resources of Bolivia. And so you helped install a dictatorship that would facilitate that looting. In Sacaba and Sencata, Dozens of people were massacred by the, the soldiers of your dictatorship. The soldiers of your dictatorship. And one of the people, one of the people that your dictatorship murdered was a journalist. Sebastian Morrow, he was a journalist who was exposing the lies that you were telling and exposing the truth. The truth about the coup that you orchestrated and he was beaten to death in his apartment. And now you come here and dare, and dare to lecture about media freedom, about democracy, about human rights. You have no shame, you're a murderer, and you're a puppet of the United States. A puppet of the United States. In Venezuela too, you dared, you dared to support the coup attempt that Juan Guaido ridiculously, outrageously tried to attempt and declare himself the president of Venezuela. What a lie, what a lie. The majority of people in Venezuela had never even heard of Juan Guaido. And yet you said that he's the president, and I believe you still ridiculously say that Juan Guaido is the president of Venezuela. 
That is an outrage and it's insult. An insult to the democracy and the sovereignty of the people of Venezuela. How dare you do this, you murderer who murdered people in Bolivia. You murderer who supported the sanctions in Venezuela. The sanctions in Venezuela that killed 40,000 people. 40,000 people because of your lies, because of the coup attempt that you've been part of. Sir, and you are nothing, nothing but a murderer, and you have no sir, shame uh, here uh, to come and talk about human sir. rights, to lecture the okay. whole world, to lecture the whole hemisphere, to lecture the whole hemisphere about democracy and the freedom of the sir. press. Sir. When Sebastian Moro, an sir, Argentine sir. journalist who is in Bolivia, an Argentine journalist who is in Bolivia, exposing the truth about the coup, and he was killed. You're here. You're here. The lecture about media freedom when you installed a dictatorship that murders journalists and murders innocent people, workers, indigenous people, students, you. Yeah, kudos to him. He is absolutely brave and he is speaking truth to power. That's what that looks like right there. So thankfully, Bolivia ultimately thwarted this coup attempt and they took back their democracy. Uh, but the problem is that there's never been any accountability, and when there's no accountability, then we can all expect it to happen again, perhaps not in Bolivia, but maybe in a different country. I mean, it happened with Venezuela, as that individual pointed out. So, you know, these leaders here, they have the audacity to speak about press freedom and democracy as if they genuinely care about that. They will disregard press freedom and democracy in an instant, so long as strategically that's the valuable position to take. Political expediency above everything else. Our interests above everything else. So I love that, you know, people were not backing down and so many journalists and activists confronted these leaders here. Because if you're going to say one thing but do another, that's something that as a civilized society, we just can't accept. So they have to be challenged and they have to be called out for their hypocrisy. And I applaud everyone here for standing up and genuinely speaking truth to power in a very important and profound way. A few weeks ago, the group that successfully defeated Madison Cawthorn stated that their next target would be Congresswoman Lauren Boebert. Now, they noted that they didn't necessarily expect to find anything as salacious as the Cawthorn videos, maybe excluding this information about her husband, who was arrested in 2004 after exposing himself to minors at a bowling alley. But overall, really what they intended to dig up was evidence of corruption. And they've already uncovered something that is so serious that the Attorney General of Colorado is investigating her. As Alex Griffin of Mediaite reports, Representative Lauren Boebert is facing a probe from Colorado's Attorney General's office after a complaint was filed against her over alleged fraud related to her 2020 congressional run. The New York Times reported on Wednesday that the group that successfully targeted controversial Representative Madison Cawthorn filed a complaint against Boebert alleging she inflated the mileage she logged on the campaign trail in 2020 and then used more than $20,000 in reimbursements from donors to pay off years of tax liens on her restaurant. The deputy Colorado attorney general for criminal justice, Janet Drake, has since confirmed to David B. Wheeler of the American Muckrackers PAC that both her office and Colorado's Department of Revenue and Department of Labor and Employment will investigate the issue. The Times notes that Wheeler's allegations against Boebert are not new. The allegations have bounced around liberal circles since the Denver Post first reported in February 2021 that Ms. Boebert had cashed two checks from her campaign totaling $22,259 for mileage reimbursement, a figure that equated to 38,712 miles, well more than the 24,901 mile circumference of the planet.
Hmm, seems a little bit sus if you ask me. Now, for comparison's sake, her predecessor, Scott Tipton, who she defeated in a GOP primary, uh, he requested less than $10,000 in mileage reimbursement. So what she's asking for is truly absurd, and it is very, very likely that she's lying uh, because she has a history of lying. Let me remind you that this individual has already violated congressional ethics and campaign finance laws by failing to disclose the fact that her husband raked in more than $1 million as a consultant for the fossil fuel industry, all while she was introducing legislation that would increase their profits, such as a proposal to reverse the ban on federal lands that Biden had implemented via executive order. So we're not just talking about a mere conflict of interest, which is bad in and of itself. We're talking about a potential quid pro quo here that needs to be investigated, but nothing came of that. But thankfully, in this instance, it seems like Colorado's attorney general will take action. Now, I also have to point out that she temporarily lost her restaurant license for violating COVID restriction laws, which was actually a net benefit for people in Colorado, considering that she literally poisoned people at a rodeo she catered, leaving some with bloody diarrhea, which is just insane. I mean, nobody should want to eat at her restaurant. But I mean, if you're asking me, is this a possibility? Did she exaggerate? I'd say, yeah, it's very likely. And it is suspicious enough to warrant an investigation because odds are she did not drive that far. Now that in and of itself is a different story. But the real question here is, did she use that money that she got from exaggerating to pay tax liens against her restaurant. The article continues, the investigation takes on an additional level of potential criminality as Bobert is accused of using the reimbursed funds to pay off tax liens filed against her restaurant. The Times notes that the Colorado Department of Labor and Employment filed liens totaling $20,000 against Bobert from August of 2016 to February of 2020 for failure to pay unemployment premiums on her business Shooter's Grill. As you are both fully aware, utilizing an illegal source of funds or ill-gotten funds to pay off a tax lien is illegal in Colorado and under federal law. That is the very definition of ill-gotten funds, reads the muckrackers complaint to Colorado's attorney general. Yeah, I'd say. So we'll have to wait and see. But the fact that this organization was able to take a story that was already out there and turn it into an investigation shows you how savvy they are. So if I were Lauren Boebert, I would uh, be really afraid right now because not only is what she did suspicious, but if there's actually evidence that she used that money by exaggerating her mileage to pay down tax liens. I mean, I don't know what the repercussions would be, but if it was a normal person, we all know that they'd be in jail, but because this is an elite, who knows what's gonna happen? You know, she's using allegedly taxpayer dollars to benefit herself personally. She already showed that she didn't disclose the fact that her husband was a fossil fuel consultant while she was representing these fossil fuel industries legislatively. So, you know, she's un an unethical person. She's demonstrated that time and again, but whether or not there'll be legal penalties for this, we'll have to wait and see. But I've got to say this group is good. And, you know, if they're able to successfully bring down Bobert next after killing off Cawthorn's campaign and his congressional career, this will cement their status as legends in D.C. Uh, and for all the right reasons, you know, um, which is usually not the case. Usually these organizations are shadowy and it's still, you know, somewhat slimy because it's a pack and we don't necessarily know who funds them. But overall, if they're targeting shitty people, I've got no problem with that.
field? Yes. I'm not volunteering for Greg Abbott, and we want to know if we count on your support for his upcoming election. Absolutely not. <laughs> Everybody got to have a job, sir. Remember? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Have a good one. That was ring doorbell footage of Monique Dawson, a paid canvasser for Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who, as you saw, admitted that she does not support the governor and she's just doing this because, well, it's a job. Now, she presumably recognized the individual who answered the door, hence the hysterical laughter when she asked him, can we count on your support? And he said, absolutely not, because I think they probably knew each other's political affiliation. Uh, so that's why it was it was so funny, because, you know, he knew she didn't support him. She knew he wouldn't support Greg Abbott, but she's just reaching out to a constituent. Absolutely hilarious. That video put a giant smile on my face. I'm not sure about you, but I've got to say, kind of a dick move to upload the ring doorbell footage to TikTok because this video subsequently went viral and expectedly it led to her losing her job. Take a look. Hey, my name is Monique. I'm in Fort Worth, Texas. Here goes the car from the video. As you know, I was out um, doing my campaigning yesterday for Greg Abbott. And I mean, like when the doctor, I saw his face. Um, <laughs> I just laughed. I laughed so hard. And then when they shared the video, my campaign manager, he, you know, pulled me to the side. He was like, you know, we, we have to let you go. So they definitely fired me this morning. So there you have it. She got fired once that went viral. Now, I'm glad that I saw the footage, but for future references, if you're an individual who lives in Texas and a canvasser approaches you and they don't actually support Greg Abbott, please do not upload the footage of your conversation to TikTok because you're kind of ousting them, you're snitching. In fact, I'd argue that this is the social media equivalent of snitching. And if you also don't support Greg Abbott, why would you kind of out her. Um, now, as disappointing as it is that she lost her job, I mean, this is what we all expected. There is a happy ending to this story. And overall, it seems like Monique is gonna be way better off because she launched a GoFundMe and she asked for a couple of dollars from anyone who can afford to chip in, you know, a buck or two, uh, just so she can pay the bills until she finds a new job. And within a couple of days, she raised nearly 30 thousand dollars so i love monique i will include the link to her gofundme in the description box if you want to support her she just seems like a genuinely pleasant person who's trying to get ahead and this set her back she probably didn't anticipate that video going viral she probably didn't even know that she was being recorded so look if you support her chip in a buck or two but there's a bizarre element to this story and i'm not necessarily sure why but greg abbott's office is denying that she was employed with them but that's untrue she did work for them as local reporter priscilla aguirre of my san antonio explains abbott's office has denied that dawson ever worked for them telling the daily dot this individual has never been employed by texans for greg abbott or volunteered for the campaign however the daily dot reported dawson provided bank records and screenshots of text messages and group chats with colleagues and people she says supervised her employment as a canvasser the texts time stamped from the last several months discussed time dates and locations to canvas for the campaign 
So maybe they're in denial and don't want to think that people who work for them don't actually support the campaign and maybe trying to sabotage them internally. But I think that maybe this is kind of a last fuck you to her and trying to get people to think that she's grifting and didn't really work for him and this whole thing was staged. I'm not really sure, but it's just kind of strange to lie about this, but leave it to Republicans to lie because this is what they do. But this whole story is funny because it reminds me of the 2020 presidential election when there were individuals who worked for Mike Bloomberg who didn't actually support him. Now, I talked about this on my program, but for those of you who forgot, back in February of 2020, Kayla Williams tweeted, I just had a Mike Bloomberg canvasser come to my door. I let him know politely, I'm decidedly voting for Bernie Sanders. And then he just gave me a fist bump and said, oh, me too. Feel the burn, homie. Now, this wasn't just an isolated incident because Luke Darby of GQ actually reported about how many paid volunteers for Mike Bloomberg were telling voters to support other candidates, namely Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. So that's just incredible. Um, I love it. I, I love to hear stories about this when pieces of shit, you know, have people rebel against them. I mean, I feel like it's only natural when you have a politician like Greg Abbott in Texas. He has so much blood on his hands. This is just karma, right? So I'll remind everyone again, if another Greg Abbott canvasser comes to your door and they don't actually support him, don't out them by uploading the footage to TikTok. The social media clout isn't worth their job. Sure, it ended well for Monique here and she got a really nice GoFundMe, but odds are maybe the video doesn't go viral and they still get fired. Maybe, you know, it doesn't end as well for them. They don't land on their feet. Monique's going to be okay, it seems. But don't snitch. Nobody likes snitches. Just shut up and enjoy the moment. Even though I'm thankful that this moment was shared with us, overall, don't be a snitch. If you still were not convinced that the Republican Party is a fascist organization, well, I've got some more evidence for you. As Paul Blumenthal and Nicholas Johnson of HuffPost reports, Republican House candidate Carl Palladino praised Nazi leader Adolf Hitler's ability to rouse the crowds and declared Hitler the kind of leader we need today in a February 2021 interview on the radio station WBEN in Buffalo, New York. Hmm. Interesting. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. Well, this has got to be some fringe GOP candidate. Actually, no. He's been endorsed as of June 3rd by the third highest ranking Republican in the House of Representatives, Elise Stefanik. And she enthusiastically endorsed him, tweeting out, I am proud to announce my endorsement of my friend Carl Palladino in New York 23. Carl is a job creator and conservative outsider who will be a tireless fighter for the people of New York in our fight to put America first to save the country. And he also thinks that Hitler is the kind of leader that we need today. This is who she endorsed. Now, let's be charitable to her here and assume that she had no idea that he said this in 2021. Okay, fair. I'll assume that that's the case. Well, in 2016, he was removed from the Buffalo School Board for saying something so racist that they refused to tolerate him. HuffPost explains this isn't Palladino's first brush with controversy. In 2016, he said in an interview that he would like to see President Barack Obama die from mad cow disease and First Lady Michelle Obama return to being a male and let loose in the outback of Zimbabwe, where she lives comfortably in a cave with Maxi the gorilla. Those comments led to Palladino being removed from the Buffalo School Board. That's who Elise Stefanik, a GOP leader, decided to endorse. 
So perhaps she didn't know about what he said in 2021 because these comments are only resurfacing right now. But did you not vet him and hear what he said previously? It was kind of a big deal since he lost his position at the Buffalo School Board because of how racist he was. So look, she still endorsed him despite that racism. Don't really think that that's a flaw. I think she probably sees that as a feature to be less charitable here now that we know more. Uh, but is she going to correct this wrong and unendorse him and unequivocally condemn his comments about Hitler? Well, of course not. When presented with Palladino's statement that Hitler is the kind of leader we need today, Stefanik claimed it was taken out of context. I condemn any statement, but don't take it out of context, Stefanik told HuffPost. That is not accurate reporting. Oh, okay, so that makes sense. He didn't actually praise Hitler. He was taken out of context. We'll get to the context here in a second, but let's get to his statement because he's agreeing that yes, he was taken out of context and he would never praise Hitler. Quote, any implication that I support Hitler or any of the sick and disgusting actions of the Nazi regime is a new low for the media, he said. The context of my statement was in regards to something I heard on the radio from someone else and was repeating, I understand that invoking Hitler in any context is a serious mistake and rightfully upsets people. I strongly condemn the murderous atrocities committed against the Jewish people by Hitler and the Nazis. Okay, good to hear, I guess. But um, both he and Stefanik, they further try to prove how anti-Holocaust he is by pointing to a quote that he made more than 10 years ago where he supposedly condemned the Holocaust. Now, he does condemn the Holocaust in that quote, to be fair, to be a little bit more unfair, the context with which he was condemning the Holocaust back then was him comparing gay marriages to the Holocaust. Gay marriages are bad. They're as bad as the Holocaust. You're equating civil rights for gay people to the mass execution of millions and millions of Jewish people. And also queer people were executed during the Holocaust as well, by the way. But that's their evidence that he's anti-Holocaust and doesn't approve of Hitler. A little bit of a yikes, if you ask me. Now, look, the article, they quoted him, right? And him and Stefanik they're claiming he was taken out of context. So I tried to be fair and I sought out the actual context and I found a snippet of the interview. And I've got to say, the articles really don't do it justice because when you have the full context, it is so much worse, so much worse. The article doesn't even begin to describe how horrible these comments are because after he says Hitler is the kind of leader that we need, he goes on to explain why we need a leader like Hitler. Listen. We've been talking a lot about politics here today, this morning, Carl, and I know uh, that that's obviously near and dear to your heart, and, you've, and you've, you've, taken, you've taken real action, and a lot, like you were saying earlier, many people uh, don't voice their opinion or, or just become, see it as, as utter futility. How do, how do you rouse the population? How do you get people thinking about the possibility of, of, of change here in New York State and, and what that might mean for, for, our, for everyone here? I was thinking the other day about uh, somebody had mentioned on the radio uh, Adolf Hitler and, and, and how he aroused the crowds. I mean, we get up there screaming these epithets and, and, and these people were just... They were, they were hypnotized by him. Uh, that's, I guess, I guess that's the kind of uh, uh, leader we need today. We need somebody inspirational. We need somebody that 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 is a doer, has been there and done it, so that it's not a strange new world to him. 
I look around at, at the politicians that we've elected locally, and I, I just can't get comfortable with, uh, on a federal level, I can't get comfortable with, with the, the rhinoism. And on a, on, on a state level, we our Republicans are sound asleep. They, they, they're not, not an anti-government uh, group. They don't get up with new you know, uh, uh, press releases to comment on this issue, comment on that issue. I mean, there should be a debate going on in the newspaper every day about, but but you can count on the editorial page at the Buffalo News, okay, taking one side on an issue, and that's that's all it is. It's uh, uh, the letters of the editor. If if they don't like what you're writing, they don't they don't print it, and that's that's true, and it's sad. That's that's what this newspaper has become. They're not they're an opinion piece. They're they're not a factual. Uh, 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 He heard someone on the radio talking about how Hitler was screaming epithets and how that roused the crowds. And I guess that's the kind of leader we need today. Somebody inspirational. Somebody who's a doer. Now, sure, you can argue that Hitler was inspirational in the sense that he inspired people to commit mass atrocities you can claim that he's a doer because he certainly was effective he got things done the things being done being mass death but he's saying you know we need someone who's that kind of a leader the context does not help you at all it only makes things much much worse and he goes on to explain how he's sick and tired of rhinos these rhinos are bad We need a real leader, somebody who inspires people, somebody who's a doer, someone like Adolf Hitler. This is a Republican who was endorsed by a member of GOP leadership. How many times are they going to accidentally say something that seems a little bit sus and then claim they were taken out of context before people actually Take these fascists seriously. Take them at their word. He says, that's the kind of leader we need, referring to Hitler. Do you honestly, after hearing the context, think that he was taken out of context? Are we going to continue to allow these fascists in the Republican Party say fascist things, praise Hitler, call for the deaths of LGBTQ plus people as self-proclaimed Christian fascists did, outside of a pride event in texas and then just let them explain it away with the oops teehee i was taken out of context wink wink how long before we wake up and acknowledge that these aren't simple mistakes these are intentional things that they're saying during that interview he had ample opportunity to correct himself the interviewer could have intervened and said wait are you saying we need a leader like hitler in the united states do you want to clarify he had an opportunity to explain And he did, but it's not what he wants you to believe now, because it might not be politically expedient to just explicitly say that you want a Hitler figure in the United States. This is who the GOP leadership, Elise Stefanik, has endorsed, and she's refusing to withdraw her support for a pro-Hitler candidate. And I don't think that that's uncharitable. We heard the audio. You have the context now. You heard it for yourself. It's much worse than the articles make it appear. They just say that he claims Hitler is the kind of leader we need, but they don't explain how he in-depth 
describes why we need that kind of a leader who's inspirational, who's a doer. And how we don't need these rhinos, we need real conservatives like Hitler. It's time to wake up. If you believe that the Republican Party today is simply about tax cuts for small businesses, you have been horribly mistaken. They're not just social conservatives anymore. They're no longer just proto-fascists. We are seeing them evolve into outright violent fascists. And not every single elected Republican is at that stage yet. But the trajectory is very clear. Elements of the base have become increasingly violent. 40% of Republicans almost believe that violence may be necessary because they think that the election is stolen. And if you can't carry out your political agenda through democratic means, then you do it using violence, terrorism. There's been terrorist threats on LGBTQ spaces in Texas. They've weaponized hate very successfully. They're getting normies to believe that LGBTQ plus people are a danger. This is the modern Republican Party. They are fascist. And it's time that people stop pretending as if that's uncharitable. They are absolutely a fascist organization. And if people in America don't wake up and take them as the threat that they are, then it may be too late for this country. Literally, democracy may not survive this era, this level of extremism with the Republican Party. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.